It is such a joy to see you all gathered here tonight. And having heard the voice of God, the most appropriate response is to respond in prayer. So will you pray with me as we begin our time together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us so clearly in your word. And we thank you for giving us the privilege of gathering as students, staff and partners and supporters and family who are brothers and sisters in Christ because of what you have done through the person and work of your son. And as we try to think your thoughts after you as to how to live in these last days, we pray that you will so penetrate our souls so that our lives genuinely will be changed to align with your plans and your purposes. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do you feel like you are in control of your time? Or do you feel that time is in control of you? What is it that controls your eating habits? Is it a question from the MC? <laughs> do you eat because you are genuinely hungry or because the time of day suggests that you ought to be hungry? What controls your eating habits? What is it that controls your sleeping habits? Uh, do you wake up because your body naturally rises just before breakfast to arrive on time at focal point at 7.30? Or because of the alarm that goes off that you keep on switching off uh, in the morning? What is it that controls your time? Uh, time is one of your greatest assets, but also one of your greatest enemies isn't it? But according to our great God, who has just spoken to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time for every matter. Let's look at these verses again in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. You know, this poem, which we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes, was actually turned into a song back in the late 60s, early 70s, by a group called the Birds, B-Y-R-D-S. Has anybody heard of this group before? Whoa, that's far more than I could have imagined. Uh, that's amazing. You guys are hip. Yeah, that's incredible. If you know The Birds, because you know it's one of the soundtracks, don't you? So, you, so you'd be familiar with this song? Hands up if you've heard of or watched Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, enough. There's a soundtrack in there isn't it, with this song. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn. You can... Those of you who know the song, you can kind of just groove with it, can't you? In fact, you can smell the, the drugs even, can't you, when the song is being sung. It's, it's by those guys who, you know, who are hippies, who have that long hair. Do you know Howard Spencer was a hippie? Well, he, ask him about his trip to Europe with his long hair one day, and, and he'll tell you all about the birds. I'm sure he knows about them uh, in due course. And this song is quite incredible because it talks about how there is a time for every matter. And the song actually brings that to life. And as we work through the list, there are lots of wonderful activities. There's birth, there's planting, there's healing, there's laughing, there's embracing, there's love, there's peace, which is the vibe of the birds in their song. But why is there a time for the opposites? Why is there a time to hate and given what we've seen in Ukraine and the Sudan, let alone centuries of bloodshed in history, why is there a time for war? Perhaps more personally, you've recently been through a time of weeping. 
a time of mourning. And it makes you ask, why? Why is this happening? But here's the thing. What matters is not knowing why everything happens, but knowing the God who knows why everything happens. What matters is not knowing why everything happens, but knowing the God who knows why everything happens. For what does God say about these things, these polar opposite things that happen in the course of life and in history? Chapter 3, verse 11 reads, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful? Yeah, there is meaning in the timeliness of every event at every extreme under the sovereign gaze of God. Events don't have meaning in and of themselves, but they have meaning in the context of time. And God is so bold as to declare this in Ecclesiastes 3, beautiful, beautiful in its time. Including the war in Ukraine, including the death of my mother, my first wife, including the diagnosis of cancer for my beautiful Jeanette. Beautiful? How can that be beautiful? How can that be beautiful even in a timely way? Cancer is never beautiful. But this beauty has to do with eternity. Look at the verse again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. That is, from the beginning of creation, God gave humanity an awareness that there is some overwhelming plan from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity. Uh, we can't understand time outside of a linear basis in terms of our logic, notwithstanding what multiverses tell you. But time is something that only God understands outside of it. And there is no such thing as eternity past or eternity future. It's all eternity, really. But God has given us a sense, nevertheless, of past, present and future in our hearts. This thing called eternity. And we all have this sense that there is more to this material world than this material world. Now, at the age of 45, a man in the late 1920s who was an alcoholic and a petty criminal heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and turned to him in repentance and faith. And the sermon was about eternity. And he was so captivated by that that he started to write the word eternity in copper plate script for 30 years all over the streets of Sydney between 1930 and 1960. In fact, he even wrote it on the footpaths in parts of Melbourne and, would you believe, inside a clock in a bell tower somewhere in Sydney as well. He just found them everywhere. This man's name is Arthur Stace. And he recognized the eternity that is there beautifully in the hearts of every human being. That God is placed there for a certain purpose to point us to Christ somehow. And you know, for the first 20 years, he was completely anonymous. Nobody knew who wrote it. They called him Mr. Eternity. And you might recall... Oh no, looking at you, you weren't born in the year 2000. But in the year 2000, <laughs> there was the word eternity blazoned on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. There's the man, Arthur Stace. 
But back to the text, why has God put eternity into our hearts? Look at verse 11 again. Yet so that he or she cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He gives us a sense that there is a beginning and there is an end. He gives us a sense that there is eternity, but he gives us that sense so that we can't find out what is God has done from beginning to end. What? How is this a good thing? Now, we know it's a good thing because God has done it. And he's done it for a purpose. And the purpose is so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. How is that possibly a good thing? Can you talk with the person next to you for a moment? Why don't you try and wrestle with this idea? How can this be a good thing for God to limit our understanding of what he has done? You've got 30 seconds. How did you go? How could this possibly be a good thing for God to limit our knowledge? Anybody have any thoughts at all that are willing to share? Yes, way up the back in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you. We can be super prideful if that's the case, if we actually knew so much. Thank you. Okay, you can hear me okay now? Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well, uh, that's, that's so helpful, isn't it? That is to limit our knowledge is to stop us from thinking that we are God because we are not God. See, the frustration is deliberately imposed on us by God so that we will always be able to recognize who God really is. We're not God. God is big and we are small. And it's actually a loving thing for us to know that. Otherwise, we're going to think that we're God and we're really going to go astray. God has limited our knowledge so that we can rightly stand in awe of who God really is. The fat word that theologians use is the word transcendent. That is, God transcends our knowledge. He transcends time. He transcends all our creation. So remember who God is. Remember who we are. God made everything. God knows everything. God makes everything happen in the right time throughout eternity. And so because he's limited our knowledge, in one sense, eternity is a mystery to us. Right. We can only know certain things. We humans cannot work out what God's purposes are by our own intelligence. We can try, and indeed people have tried. Last night there was a great question from a friend who said that their unbelieving friends keep on saying, how can you know anything? Because we don't have empirical evidence about God. Uh, just a, a little an aside here in thinking through how we know anything, right? We, you can do that. Uh, know something inductively, that is, use empirical data from a bottom-up kind of way. You can test the evidence and then inductively work out something. Do you know, I, I learnt today at uh, a post-grad get-together that the internet can tell you more about you than you know about yourself from 37 likes. Isn't that scary? 300. Oh, 300. <laughs> oh, Okay. I did think 37 was rather minimal, but 300 likes. <laughs> I stand corrected by another human being. Uh, AI might tell me otherwise, but 300 likes. Okay, so that's enough. Okay, so if you've liked something 300 times, well, they know more about you, the internet or the intrawebs or whatever you call this thing out there. And so inductively, you can know something, you can know someone from the evidence, but there's also something called deduction, which is logic. A logic from the top down. You can deduce things from premises and arrive at something. And so you know something that way. Or you can actually have something revealed to you. Now, there are all ways of knowing things, right? But now some of you know about my cousin Terry. If you know about my cousin Terry, you're not allowed to say anything. But those of you who don't know anything about my cousin Terry, just chat to the person next to you. What can you know about my cousin Terry? True question. 30 quest, 30 seconds.
Okay, that's enough. Gosh, you think you know a lot about my cousin Terry. Oh, goodness, you can keep going. Now, something that I've worked out inductively is that if your number plate is YOJ93N, your lights are on and you might not be able to get home. So you can walk quietly out so that nobody knows who you are. YOJ93N. Oh, there you go. Someone might have quietly walked in uh, with that number plate, but there you go. Okay. So, anybody who actually doesn't know my cousin Terry, can you tell me what you know about my cousin Terry? Yes? Um, they have parents that are related to yours. They have parents that are like, isn't he clever? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's so true. Yes? He's got blonde hair. He's got blonde hair. Right. How did you know that? Oh, just a guess. Okay. <laughs> so, that, that was deductive guessing. Right, right. Yes, up the back. He exists. Wow. That is, that is so impressive. Yes. He might have Asian heritage. He might have Asian heritage. He could have been adopted. I could have been adopted. <laughs> you don't know that, do you? I mean, there's all sorts of ways of knowing what it is. Last, last. Terry has a cousin. Terry has a cousin. <laughs> wow. Did you hear all that? There was deductive reasoning. He has a cousin. <laughs> He's male. But... Could be a female, couldn't you? She. Terry is one of those names that you can use for both genders. But there's deductive. You could actually use inductive reasoning. You could get a piece of my DNA and work out what Terry is like. But dear friends, let me show you a genuine bony fide picture of my cousin Terry. This, this is my cousin. Terry Gallio was Mr. Asia in 1999. <laughs> Have you liked it? No, that's another thing. Did anybody deduce that? Did anybody induce that? There's no way you could have worked that out by looking at me, huh? <laughs> Although some of you think, yeah, I can see the resemblance, yeah. <laughs> the only way you could possibly work that out is through me revealing it to you, genuinely. He is my cousin. <laughs> I don't know how you can't see that. <laughs> but that's enough of Terry, right? Okay, let's just keep getting... How do you think we can know about God? How can you possibly think you can work out what God is like empirically, inductively, deductively? It, you can only know God truly if he reveals himself to you. And what he's done is actually reveal his plans. In Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10, and we're going to spend the rest of the night in the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible turned to Ephesians, you're in a good spot. I will have stuff on the screen and highlight particular phrases. But here is what God has revealed about his plans and his purposes. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Right? It, it was a mystery, but he's revealed this mystery. So it's a secret that is now revealed according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, God didn't have to reveal anything to us, but he did. He included us in his inner circle, shared his plans for eternity with us. And he made it known that creation is heading towards a climax in which everything and everyone will come under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's all headed. And we saw that climactically in the book of Revelation on Monday night, if you were here, where Jesus is on his throne with his Father. And we are gathered there in perfection, the home of righteousness. And that's where everything is headed. But of course, it was foreshadowed back in Genesis chapter 1, wasn't it? 
Because back in Genesis chapter 1, we learnt that humanity was meant to reign supreme over all creation by day 6. There was everything that was created, but humanity was created at the climax of creation, meaning to, to be in dominion over all of creation. But in the end, did they have dominion? Did humanity have to, Did Adam and Eve have dominion? Noah? Abraham? David? In fact, from the beginning... It wasn't humanity that had dominion, but it was sin ultimately, wasn't it? In fact, back in Genesis chapter 4, you might recall, sin is crouching at the door of Cain's life. And God says to Cain, its desire, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must have dominion over it. But sin won out. And like his parents, Cain fails to rule, to have dominion. Instead, sin continues to have dominion. From the beginning of the Bible story, we're longing for the fulfillment of God's creation plan for day six, where humanity is meant to be in dominion over creation. We're looking for a human to have ultimate dominion, not just over the birds and the beasts and the reptiles, but over all the subversive forces in the world, including sin and death. But we know we don't have dominion over death, and not this side of the return of Jesus. And I take it that personally... You know, and I know, we don't have dominion over sin really, do we? We still covet, still envy, we still hold grudges, we still lack self-control. We know it's there, we know it's crouching at the door. And we don't seem to have dominion over it. And so that's why we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, here the Apostle Paul tells us the reality for each and every one of us. The world says, you do you. But for you to do you is to be the walking dead, who follow the triad. Know that triad? The world, the prince of the power of the air, which is another way of describing Satan, or the devil, and the flesh, the sinful heart, or the sinful aspect of our nature that is there doing battle with the spirit in our lives if we are people who have turned to Jesus. But there's the world, the flesh and the devil, like three strands of a cord tightly woven. And it's a sobering reality. Our passions, our desires, the thoughts of our minds are the controlling forces in our lives. And so by our very nature, we are children observing or indeed deserving the very wrath of God. So what of God's plan for eternity? From the foundation of the world, God had a plan for the fullness of time for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of day six where God ordained Jesus to be the true human, to reign supreme over all creation. That's what we read back in Ephesians chapter 1, isn't it? Verse 20, Ephesians 1 verse 20. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Can you hear the ages now? 
the overlap of the ages in this age and the one to come. He rules. He, he is ruling in dominion. And God's plan for the fullness of time, the purpose, the goal of time is to bring all things under the dominion of Jesus. And that has happened through his death and resurrection and ascension. Except it's not quite at the same time. right? The end began with Jesus. He is the human who has dominion. But at the same time, we learn other things. Firstly, Jesus is not in the heavenly places as he has dominion over everything. But who else is in the heavenly places? Chapter 2, verse 4. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is, if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Saviour, and he's poured out his spirit upon you, as we've learnt through the course of the week, if you've been here through the week, we know that we have been raised with Christ and we are now seated with him in these heavenly places where Jesus rules in dominion over everything. Jesus is in the heavenly places. We are in the heavenly places. We are in the heavenly places right now. But what are the heavenly places? It doesn't feel like the heavenly places, does it? When you're stressing about exams, it doesn't feel heavenly. When you're cleaning tables at your cafe job, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're sitting here just thinking, are you actually thinking, I'm raised with Christ? But you are, if you put your trust in him. You're in the heavenly places. So where or what are the heavenly places? That's the second last question for you tonight. Go for it. Where or what are the heavenly places? Okay, let's try and come back together now. Is anybody willing to have a go? Where or what are the heavenly places? Morris? Uh, where God's almighty power covers. Yeah, that's a great answer. What a great birthday gift you have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so his almighty power covers the place. That's true. Any other thoughts about where or what the heavenly places? We're there. Jesus is there. Sorry, what was that? God's right hand. Yeah, the heavenly places are God's right hand. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, let's read on in Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places. Did I hear a ooh somewhere? <laughs> Jesus is in the heavenly places. We are in the heavenly places. But so are the spiritual forces of evil. What are they doing in the heavenly places? Isn't that heaven? Well, it can't be heaven, can it? Even though it's the heavenly places. So it can't be Revelation 21 because evil is shut out from that place that we learnt about on Monday night. So what are these heavenly places? Well, you see, the heavenly places, and that helps, that's helpful, isn't it? Even though we're at the right hand of Jesus ourselves, we know that we battle with sin and evil and spiritual forces of evil. So it makes sense that we still battle these forces while we ourselves are in the heavenly places. Well, let me tell you what the heavenly places are not to start off with. It is not Revelation 21, as we mentioned before, nor is it a multiverse. I just thought I'd put that out there with that unimaginable ocean of parallel universes where parallel visions or versions of us exist, like in Spider-Verse or everything, everywhere, all at once. 
where the meaning of eternity is a bagel. Yeah, that was my impression too, huh? But that's. But really, it. Anyway, I, I won't go there. I have particular thoughts about that movie, but I will refrain. Let's look at this diagram that you've been wrestling with. Slightly different version of it, right? So we know that there's this age, which is the bottom line, when Jesus rose to be enthroned as the resurrected Christ. Remember, he dragged in the age to come. We've talked about that from last night. He dragged it into this fallen age to create the overlap of the ages. But another way of talking about the overlap of the ages is the already and not yet, or the now and not yet. Right. So now we already experience in part what we are yet to experience in full at the end. In full at the end, there will be no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. And now we experience that in part in as much as we recognize the blessings we enjoy and can look forward to that. Now Jesus is already reigning far above all rule and power and dominion. Now we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but we are not yet in the new creation. We experience some of the blessings now in all sorts of ways, not least of which the community that we enjoy here, some sense of what sin is like, some sense of actually even progressing in our dominion over sin, even though we are not perfected yet. You see, we have Jesus dragging in the new creation, enabling us to experience now in part, what we will experience in full in the future. And so here is my suggestion to you, that the heavenly places, although not exactly the same as heaven, as in Revelation 21 and 22, but what the heavenly places are is, wait for it, the spatial equivalent to the already and not yet. The spatial equivalent to the now but not yet. The spatial equivalent of the last days, the end times we're in. And I think that's what Ephesians is actually addressing in terms of the time that we're in as we think through it. So have a think with me. See, at point four, if you've got your outlines, we're at point four, living in the heavenly places in the end times. If we live in the heavenly places, it's spatial equivalent of the last days, a spatial equivalent of what it is to live in the here and now, in the now but not yet. Firstly, how do we live in the end times? By bathing in the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, note, with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. First thing to note is that we are bathing in his blessings. What kind of blessings? Spiritual blessings. Where do these spiritual blessings come from? From heaven, which has been dragged into the present. What do these spiritual blessings consist of? Well, firstly, let me say to you that these blessings are spiritual in the sense that they are blessings of the end that Jesus has dragged in. It is not speaking about the difference between the material and immaterial realities. Rather, it's speaking about the time or age of the spirit. It's talking about the age of fulfillment. It's talking about these last days where the spirit has been poured out. Right. The age of the end, the last days. And the spiritual blessings of the end that we can enjoy now include being chosen in Jesus before the beginning of time. Right, the rest of chapter 1, if you're familiar with it. It includes being adopted through Jesus in time. It includes being redeemed by the blood of Jesus at the climax of time at Jesus' death and resurrection. And furthermore, although we have not received our inheritance of heaven now, God's Spirit has given us a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's a blessing, you see. The pouring out of the Spirit is a deposit of the future that awaits us. In what way does the Spirit guarantee the future that we await? Well, think back to Monday night. We began with the end. We saw the new heavens and the new earth. What is about 
what it is about is that the Spirit guarantees this future. And in the new creation, God will dwell with his people as their God, remember? God dwelling with a sinful people who are perfected through the blood of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ. They are perfect. That's why God can dwell with his people and we will behold him face to face. We will see his face shining like the sun as we've sung over and again. And so God's spirit is the foretaste of this reality of dwelling with God now. And God actually speaks to us of this blessing in another way in terms of God's spirit dwelling with us in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 19 to 22 in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. You see, it's a spiritual blessing, but this spiritual blessing is seen in growing us into a holy temple. And that's happening now. Right? It's a future thing that is for sure, because remember, there is no need for a temple in the new creation. Remember that? Because Jesus is that temple. But what is he doing now? How do we taste it now in this heavenly places in the last days well by being built into a spiritual temple now the spirit does that organizes us into this temple and why the temple language because god dwells with us that's why and god not only includes us in his inner circle of knowledge but he keeps us in his inner circle through the gift of his holy spirit in these end times which has significant implications for church. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 8 to 10. The Apostle Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Right They're the non-Jews. I think here he's speaking of Gentiles who are not Saints. In this context, I think the saints are Jewish people and the Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Again, he's revealing his mystery, right? Hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Which rulers and authorities? The evil forces. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those ones. Is that what you think when you gather at church? On Sunday morning, Sunday night, or perhaps even on another day if that's where you go to church? That when you gather and the church proclaims through the preacher the wisdom of God to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, if they preach Christ truly, they'll be preaching his lordship over all the world and all of history and all of humanity and all of creation, including the spiritual forces of evil. And that they're listening in? Does, is that what comes to mind when you're at church? I've got a friend whose son used to draw pictures during the sermon, especially if it was a dull sermon. It turned out that these pictures were pictures of weapons. Weapons that were meant to kill the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and his son would pass the, the drawings to his father and say, which one? <laughs> That's what that person thought about church. right? Now, you may not go that, that far. 
But I wonder whether your mind just wanders off to, hmm, wonder what the algorithm is for these likes that are 300 of them that actually have worked out what it is that they know about me or if my mind wanders off to the exam or wanders off to the pressure. And it's just very hard to contain our thoughts and it's very hard to recognise that we're dealing with something extremely supernatural every time we gather around the Word of God at church. But that's what's happening. Whenever we gather and the preacher is preaching the gospel and we preach the gospel to one another in our conversations, God is forming a new humanity and evil forces are taking note. Do you realize that? That's happening now. Right now. But their evil influences remain, even though they are listening. And so Paul says that the days are evil. And so we read in chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. All right, so the next portion of our time is going to be thinking, well, how are we going to make the best use of the time? If we're in these last days, if we're in this spatial equivalent of the now but not yet in the heavenly places, if we know that the time is short and the days are evil, if we know that Jesus is going to return at any point, we just don't know when, then how are we going to make the best use of our time? How are you going to make the best use of whatever time God gives us before we are taken from this world or before Jesus returns? How are we going to make the best use of that time? You want to know what the best use of the time is? Strap yourselves in because here is what we're going to learn. Firstly, being wise. Wise about what? Well, knowing God's eternal and beautiful eternity that is revealed, that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all heading towards Jesus being in dominion over everything. He is in dominion now, but it will be one day in full and ultimately fully, fully fulfilled. But for now, he's still in dominion, but evil forces are at work. Be wise about the time. And there are two activities Two postures that the rest of Ephesians will talk about. Firstly, walking, right? Look carefully then how you walk. And secondly, standing. Firstly, your walk. We're at point 4B, I think, in your notes. Your walk. Your walk is your way of life, right? Your walk is how you live. And the first way to be wise is to remember how you once walked. Chapter 2 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were the walking dead. If you are Christians now, there was a time perhaps beforehand, but maybe not. Maybe you've grown up as a Christian in your family and you have been incredibly blessed. But those of us who know a time when we weren't Christians, we know at that time we were the walking dead, following the world, the flesh and the devil, bent in on ourselves with this hellish delight to be independent of God. But God saved us by his unbelievable grace for a different walk, didn't he? In Ephesians 2 verse 10 we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should Walk in them. Right? God has planned not only for his son to have dominion and at the climax of time to have everything under his feet. Well, he's also planned for us to do good work that align with Jesus' dominion. God sovereignly prepared good works for us to walk in even before we became Christians, if you can remember that time. And do you know what the first command we are given is in Ephesians? Chapter 2, verse 13. Remember. Can you believe that? That's the first command is to remember something. You kind of think like it's read your Bible or go and tell people about Jesus. No, it's remember. It's really important to remember their past. Remember the history. Remember the history that we have, even though it's not our personal history, but remember God's history involving God's people. Remember that you who are not Jewish Christians, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. If you are a Christian who can remember a time when you were not a Christian, then you can identify with the people that Paul is writing to here. People who know that at one time they didn't have any hope in God. At one time they were separated from God. At one time, I remember this time, when I was not following Jesus as number one of my life. I was a good person. I was a moral person. I didn't even have an overdue library book. I was so good. But it was purposeless and was all about me. Bent in on myself. Loving myself more than anything or anyone else. Under the wrath of God. But in his unbelievable mercy, he sent Jesus, didn't he? To take upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve. That's what we've got to remember, dear brothers and sisters. You want to know love? Look at the cross. Look what Jesus did to die the death that you deserve. And in light of that, if we remember that, if we know how good it is to be saved, if we know what God has done for us, then it's only in the light of recognising how incalculable his love is for us, is being compelled by his love, that we can read Ephesians 4 verse 17 and following. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Derivative application for us as you used to walk when you were not a Christian. right? In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Right? If Jesus has died the death that you deserve, then you have a new identity. If you put your trust in him, you have a Christian identity. Remember, you are a Christian first before you are anything else. If you are to introduce yourself at a party or someone, don't say, I am a whatever student from whatever university. Why don't you start with, I'm a Christian or I'm a person for whom Christ died. I'm someone who put my trust in Jesus because that's actually your core identity. In fact, it's more of your core identity than even being a man or a woman or a husband or a wife or an aunt or an uncle or a cousin who has Mr. Asia as his cousin, right? <laughs> your identity is as Christ. And so if that's your new identity, then you must not live as pre-Christian Gentiles used to do. Christians have learned Christ. We're not ignorant of his mercy and humility and patience anymore. We're not ignorant of his right judgment against us. He's not, uh, we're not ignorant of our jealousy and deceit for which he has died to save us from. So don't live like we don't know. Notice the danger that sin is, right? Sin is futile thinking. Sin darkens our understanding. Sin alienates us from life. Sin hardens our heart. Do you want these things? If you want better things than sin, then you've got to learn to hate sin. The trouble is, we sin because we love sinning why would we sin otherwise it's just this temporary thing that gives us pleasure but in the end it's not going to bring about the pleasure that we so long for and we know that it's just empty and hollow instead what must we do ephesians 5 verse 1 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Love like Jesus. It's not talking about 
the emotion per se. It's not totally divorced from it, but the primary thing that we're talking about love, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow night, is that it's desiring what is best for the other person, even if the other person is not all that lovable. And especially if that person is someone you find hard to love. Because that's love. right? It's sacrificial. Love comes at cost to yourself. If there's no cost involved, it's not really love. It's really easy to love someone who's lovable, isn't it? I've got a granddaughter who's six months old. You come to me and I'll show you 10,000 photos of my granddaughter. She's very easy to love. She's the cutest human being on the planet. She's learned to roll, you know. It's unbelievable. And, and she got food that comes out of her mouth and it's just so cute. She's very easy to love. But someone who's just frustrating... Someone who just gets on your nerves, like a sibling, <laughs> a family member, because they get on you, because you live with them, right? And that, that's all it takes to not like someone is to live with them for a little while. <laughs> but love involves desiring their needs and their best even more than what's best for you. And that's hard work, isn't it? That's why he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. People are nailing things through his hands and he's crying out, Father, forgive them in the face of his enemies. But what will walking in love Involve. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Isn't that incredible? He starts to get incredibly practical here, doesn't it? What does it look like to make the best use of the time? By walking in love with regard to your sex life and your speech life. That's how particular he gets. Covetousness in this context, I think, refers to a desire for more impurity. Right? Sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness. It's more impurity. To walk in love is to be sacrificial like Jesus, especially in the area of sex. But also in the area of speech, verse 4, with no filthy language or foolish talk or crude joking in any way. So what will you give up in order to have a pure sex life because Jesus has died for you? How will you live a life of love? Well, can I suggest that you need to think through like the alone time you have with your girlfriend or boyfriend when no one else is in the house. How will you love each other? Or can I suggest not being each other's, in each other's house alone? Especially if you live in the colleges because there's only your room and there's only one piece of furniture in your room that you can actually sit on. It just doesn't make sense, does it? The most loving thing to do is to not be alone with that person because you know your own heart, you know the heart of the other person. Maybe it's giving up Facebook or Instagram. My goodness, it's like slashing our wrists now, isn't it? <laughs> Could you possibly do that? I sat at a table at someone who doesn't have a Facebook account. Isn't it amazing? Sacrifice. But if they know that that's what's going to really tempt them because of the videos that tempt Jealousy or discontent or covetousness. Maybe we ought to give up screen time. Whoa. Can you possibly do that? What will you have to give up to have a pure speech life? Maybe 
alcohol or late nights that cause tiredness. Maybe it's that kind of humour. You know, there's humour that Aussies love to have a kind of go at each other, but then it can get carried to a certain point where it becomes uncomfortable and unhelpful. Uh, even sarcasm, that, that's helpful to a certain point and we kind of get it, but at some point it becomes cutting. And we've got to actually work out what that is, don't we? To have a pure speech life. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. You see, here's the antidote. Love like Christ and the way you want to actually battle what is sexual immorality and filthiness of talk is through thanksgiving. If there is someone you find difficult to love, why not ask, how can I thank God for something in this person? If there is, you know, the boyfriend or girlfriend, well, how can I thank God for something of their lives that I really want to see them grow in Christ-likeness? Well, that's actually going to prevent me from at least, well, at least give me some leg up of saying no to the temptation of being sexually immoral with them. Because I'm thanking God for their life and who they are and what they're going to be like. Furthermore, walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, walking in the dark is quite different experience to walking in the clear light of day. A lifestyle of darkness is one that is shameful and needs to be hidden, needs to be kept secret. That's why sins are something that we keep secret right, in the dark. But a lifestyle of light abounds in goodness and righteousness because there's no fear of exposure. Now, would you watch that Netflix episode or series of shows if you knew your Bible study group was going to be there? Would you gladly watch whatever it is? Would you say those things about that person if you knew that that person could hear what you are saying? Would you go too far with your girlfriend or boyfriend if you knew someone could see you? I take it that the light is what is so helpful to keep us walking the way of love with one another. That's why, can I encourage you, if you are in the dating process at the moment... The best place to have a date, even an intimate date, is in a crowded restaurant in a corner. You can have a really good conversation, but everybody's watching. You kind of think, no, I'd rather bond over watching a movie. You kind of think, oh, are you really talking to each other in a movie? What are you doing? It's, it's all dark, isn't it? This also involves God's spirit-filled walk, and Ephesians talks about it in chapter 5 beginning of chapter 6 as well, with regard to marriage and family and slavery. Sadly, we don't have time to look at those things closely tonight. But I'm very happy to take questions about marriage and singleness. Uh, you did that in 1 Corinthians 7. I understand you had even debates about that. That sounds like lots of fun. Uh, but if you want to actually explore that, I don't mind uh, talking about that over question time because that's really important. Right. If we're not going to speak about it here... I don't know where else you're going to speak about it. Right? So I hope that we can get really, really vulnerable and honest as we talk through these things together, whether it's over supper and certainly through question time because I'd love to talk with you about that. So that's our walk. And we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg. But the final posture is standing. Standing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Look at the word stand there. It keeps on coming up, doesn't it? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Do you see the stand language? God is leading us through a war in these last days. How do we make the best use of time in these last days? By taking up armour. 
gospel armor. We are engaged in a spiritual war, not against humans, but against the devil himself and his agents. And do remember, won't you, that whenever there is conflict anywhere in this world, our forces of evil ultimately are the enemy, not the flesh and blood. Ultimately, it's the devil and his forces. And they have power and authority over the present darkness. They are evil. They have schemes. They have thought out strategies. One man named Abraham Kuyper wrote these words. He was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905 and a theologian. Listen to what he says. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Russia invading Ukraine, mere game. Civil war in the Sudan, toys. Civil war in Myanmar, that's just models. That's toy stuff. The battle is real. So how do we engage in this war against the world, the flesh and the devil? We're to take our stand. Uh, to stand in the position you are in a strong, stable and secure stance. But note, it's not by our efforts. It's by using gospel armour. Right? To stand, it's, it's not wrestling. It's more like sumo wrestling with oversized nappies, you know, you kind of stand there, but you kind of stand firm. But how do you do it? It's through gospel armour, the belt of truth, the truth that we were sinners but are now washed clean by Jesus, the breastplate of righteousness, that we have a right standing before God because of Jesus, shoes ready for peace given by the gospel of Jesus, the shield of faith, which is trusting in the promises of God to complete his plan in Jesus, the helmet of salvation, protection from God's punishment because of Jesus and how he has saved us, the sword of the spirit, which is the gospel word of God, moving us from ignorance to knowledge of how God's wise plan for history is to culminate under the headship of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his cross and his resurrection. That's what's going to get us through these last days. And it's all in God's strength. And it's all by proclaiming and bearing the fruit of Jesus' dominion in the end times. As we live gospel-saturated lives and prayerfully proclaim the kingship of Jesus... We make known the manifold wisdom of God in Christ to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And we engage in his strength, uniting Jews and Gentiles as fellow citizens of heaven to walk joyfully under the headship of Jesus. You see God's big plan? Oh, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven but it's all, all beautiful because Jesus reigns and rules and everything is under his feet. And the season we live in now is the time of incalculable privilege despite the war. We bathe in every spiritual blessing he has given us. We can urge brothers and sisters in Christ to keep growing as God's holy dwelling place. We walk his walk in these evil days. And we stand with the protection of his armour in his strength. And we do it all 
in the heavenly places for his glory. But he's got our backs. Yeah. Although it's a war, he's got our backs. He's died for us. He's risen. He's given us his spirit. We have everything that we have that is necessary to win this war. Because he's won it for us. And all we need to do is keep aligning ourselves with his plan as we cling to his promises and trust him and trust him and trust him no matter what happens. This is the life that we can live in these last days. Will you pray with me? We thank you, dear Father, for your kindness in our Lord Jesus Christ. For sending him to die in our place. Taking upon himself your wrath that we deserve. Enabling us to rise up with him. Now seated with you in the heavenly places. And we pray that in your strength and by your grace and your grace alone that we will walk your walk with joy. That we will stand with your gospel armour. And that we will do so in love and joy. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing, This Life I Live.